You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Can we just collectively stop and look to the Lord as a church and say, where else are we going to go? What else do we have? Can we just say that, Lord, where are we going to go? Who else do we have? If God's not with us, we're not moving anywhere, are we? And there's no peace in our lives. There's no joy in our hearts. And there's no fruit on the tree and out back <laughs> unless God's with us. I want you to turn with, to Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Genesis 11, we're going to read nine verses in just a moment. Long before the incarnation of God, we had already been introduced to the physical presence of God in what's called theophanies. Theophanies or Christophanies are appearances of God or appearances of Christ in the Old Testament, in physical form. And in many theophanies, we see the phrase, the Lord came down, as we're going to see in today's passage. The Lord came down, and what a perfect song, Hunter, for, that, for, for this series. So last week we saw the Lord's first physical appearance after the fall of mankind. And while there were punishments uh, that he had to wield out because of man's sin, there were also provisions made uh, through the world's first animal sacrifice. We know there's a law. Just like the law of gravity, you don't affect the law of gravity. The law of gravity affects you. So is the law of Hebrews 9.22, which says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. <laughs> right? You don't change that law. It's set. And so last week, the, the woman was deceived uh, and, and the man disobeyed. But this week, it, it, we take it to a whole nother level. All right? This week, the man is going to become defiant toward God. Last week was a mistake, but this week is going to be calculated misery. That's what we're about to read about. Matter of fact, I read an article this week called How to Be Miserable. Would you like to know how? Let me just read these to you. First, it says, think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of others. Listen greedily to what people say about you. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous. Be envious. Be sensitive to slights. Never forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Demand agreement with your views on everything. Sulk. If people are not grateful to you for favors shown them, never forget a service you've rendered, shirk your duties if you can, and do as little as possible for others. That's how to be miserable. <laughs> Some of y'all are like, okay, check, 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 <laughs> about the person sitting next to you. It reminds me of this power-packed little poem y'all may have heard before. I gave a little tea party this afternoon at three. Twas very small, three guests and all, I, myself, and me. Myself ate all the sandwiches while I drank all the tea. Twas also I who ate the pie and passed the cake to me. <laughs> right? It's a party, and it's just me there. Church, the trouble with self-made men, self-made people, is that they often end up worshiping their creator. And since they're self-made, their creator, they think, is themselves. 
They are masters of their own fate and they are in defiance of the first of the Ten Commandments of God in Exodus 20, verse 3, which says, you shall have no other gods before me. Friend, the pinnacle of idolatry may begin with wooden images. Well, let me tell you, it ends with the worship of ourselves. Now, can you just imagine an entire world that had reached the point of self-absorption? Can you imagine such a thing? Not too hard to imagine, is it? (laughs) I've seen pictures like that this week of Christians flexing. Hey, listen. <laughs> we can watch video after video of people getting uh, selfishes. I call them selfishes, not selfies. Uh, they get selfishes, you know, with in, in weird places. Did you know that Vicky and I were, our family was in Gatlinburg a couple of years ago. And we were coming down Clingman's Dome, the highest point in Tennessee. And there was a pull-off there. And there were ambulances. I think there were med flight and a guy out of there. But uh, a guy, I think he ended up dying. And you know how he was injured? He was taking a selfie, backing up, or whoever it was uh, died taking a selfie, fell off a cliff, right? So what happens when the world is led by self-consumed, defiant, egotistical people? Well, why don't we stand in honor of God's word and just read it straight from the Bible, all right? Genesis chapter 11, unbelievable, this passage. These are the words of God, Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Then they uh, had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they're one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they'll do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I want to ask Rex Lee to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Let's let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. And God, I pray that uh, you would just help us to be still right now. And in the next 30, 40 minutes, Lord, that we would, and Lord, just put off all the distractions that we may have. And. Lord, that you would discover when, and that you would um, speak through him, and that we would hear, Lord, what you have to say to us today. Thank you for loving us. God, I pray that if there's one here that doesn't know you, they'll come to know you today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. And you can be seated. You may find this uh, hard to believe, but more than 25 years ago, Renaissance Entertainment Incorporated of uh, Orlando marketed a new ride called Ego Trip a ride about 
you. <laughs> Listen, this is from 1997 article. The ride which uh, Renaissance hopes to sell uh, to a theme park or to operate at fairs will use riders' names, photos, and voices to create a totally personalized experience. As paparazzi snap away and adoring fans call their names, writers will attend their own movie premieres. They'll visit an art museum where they'll, be, uh, they'll view paintings of themselves as done by Picasso, Warhol, and Van Gogh. They'll attend a political rally where they'll be urged to run for president and a sporting event where they'll be praised for their athletic pr prowess. And if that weren't enough, finally they'll enjoy a ticker tape parade in their honor, as if they've been off to war and won, right? Afterward, ego-stroked stro riders will proceed to the gift shop where they'll buy all sorts of stuff emblazoned with their images. What's everyone's favorite subject? Themselves, Renaissance President John Benkowski said. This is taking that to the nth degree. Now, I don't think they ever... I couldn't find where they ever actually opened that ride. And they didn't have to because the iPhone came out, right? And we just do it for, we do it for them, all right? And this really leads to our first main point this morning. And there is no other way to, to say this, but this is the rebellion. When, when self is on the throne, it is in rebellion and defiance against God. These are the instigators of defiance toward God and his word and his plans. The title of the sermon today is... Don't be a Nimrod, all right? And you're going to see this guy pop up in just a minute right here. He's believed to be, by the way, some of you just think that's an, uh, a United States, an American idiom. Uh, but actually, Nimrod's a guy in the Bible. He's the guy that is accounted for building Babel. And so I want us to look at this guy in Genesis 10. I'll just read a couple of verses here. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Uh, sons were born to them after the flood. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Verse 8, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man, which isn't necessarily a compliment. It's more like he was an archetype of what would become a future king. This was the precursor, right, to, to, to the kings of Israel, which uh, God didn't want them to have. He was to be our king. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it's said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. I mean, he even had phrases, you know, like he had his own idioms, you know. The, uh, and um, verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the land of Shinar. Verse 11, from that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, uh, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin. Between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. You can see why uh, Jonah had such a hard time taking the gospel to Nineveh. And <laughs> they were wicked, wicked people. That's all in the land of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia now. So jump to verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is interesting that all those are the generations of Ham and he's the one that kind of walked in on his, on his drunk father and supposedly sinned in some uh, perverted way. We don't know what, exactly what happened there, but it is interesting that it, it's full grown right here into Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Now, I want you to see just what Nimrod <laughs> represents, what, the, what Babel represents. Nimrod is a real person, but he's also an example of the 
pinnacle of rebellion uh, and those who lead others astray, as the devil did in the garden. No longer is, are, is he the deceiver, he's become, he, he, no longer is he the deceived, he's become the deceiver. So first, these sins, this rebellion, I'm just going to mention three things here. First, there was the man-made settling. Genesis chapter 11, verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar. What scholars say is now Iraq, Kuwait, Syria, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. All right? And they settled there. Now, if we back up to Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Verse three, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, now I give you everything, meat, vegetables, everything, fruit. So here again, this is the crucible like we talked about last week. The crucible of our rebellion is always in this bowl of plenty that God gives us, right? We're always being spoiled. No matter what's going on in our lives, we're still spoiled by God because we've, we've yet to pay for our sin. God wanted man to spread out, to multiply, to fill the earth. And of course, that doesn't mean families had to move far away, but as families would grow, the land they possessed would be greater and greater. And by the way, people used to be worried about overpopulation. Now there's a real concern of, of uh, underpopulation, not having enough people. We don't have enough people. We don't produce enough humans right now based on the death, toll, death rates and birth rates in America to replenish our own government, to replenish our own needs financial needs. Matter of fact, uh, I, if you, I actually did a study on this. You could put every human being in the U.S. right now, people are worried about overpopulation. You could put every human being in the U.S. on 1.5 million acres. That's 0.06% of America's land area. <laughs> There's over 99% of our land area that, that, that isn't being used. Anyway, and so from Noah's family alone spread out all these nations o over all the earth. All right? We all go back to, to that ark. Every one of us in this room. <laughs> Everybody wants to do the DNA test. I already did it. I read scripture. I know exactly where I'm from. All right? And, and uh, listen to what one theologian said. He said, the line from Noah to Abraham moves out first to cover the whole known earth. Uh, the family tree of the nations begin with Noah, the man rescued by grace from a humanity that was doomed. It is his family that now spreads throughout time and space. All human people, even of different national and cultural identities, are of the same origin, have the same dignity, and belong in the same world. This undercuts all human divisiveness based on nationality, culture, and race. However good, however rich national and cultural diversity may be, it should never be allowed to cloud the more fundamental fact that all human people share the same nature, breathe the same air, live on the same earth, and owe their life to the same God. Genesis 10 verse 32 says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in the nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So God said, fill the earth. He didn't say all bunch up down there in the plain. But what did they do? They settled. Verse four, lest we be dispersed. God said disperse and they said, no, we're gonna make a plan against your plan. Not just a plan alternate to it, a plan fully juxtaposed, fully in the face, nose to nose with God. 
One scholar noted dispersion was God's plan if done God's way, not dispersion by force. Y'all remember what became of Mesopotamia, Assyria, Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity, Roman captivity, and on the list goes. And one of the, the reasons, of course, Roman, Rome wasn't in there, but my point is that mankind was forcing. Now, one of the reasons for the dispersion of language that we may not realize was, was for the benefit of humanity. It was more than punishment because the next chapter of Genesis goes on to describe the families of Abraham spreading out over all the earth in order to be a blessing to other nations. Friend, beware of settling for anything less than God's word and his plan for your family. Why did men settle and pile up right on top of each other? What was their motive? Well, first they were settling, but secondly, there was the man-made name. They wanted to make a name for themselves, all right? Not just the name Nimrod, all right? Look at your neighbor right now. Say, don't be a Nimrod. Just go ahead. This is your only chance <laughs> to safely call your wife a Nimrod. No, I'm just kidding. Church, think about this logically. If a leader, which Nimrod was, if his goal in life is narcissistic and self-consumed, right? And then what would be his greatest, uh, you know, attribute for other people to say, oh, you're just like, you're following the path of the king. So he's, if, if, if they model what their king is doing, their leader is doing, what do you have? You have a nation of people who want to be king. Sound familiar? Look familiar? Genesis 11, 4 says, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over all the earth. Well, but, but, uh, didn't Jesus make a name for himself? No. No, he didn't. Revelation 1, 8, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, uh, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There are no made parts of God. Right? He didn't have to make a name for himself. He had it. He's eternal. There's nothing to make. Anything, any part of his character, any part of his existence that had to be made would be the thing that's worthy of worship, not God. But the eternalness of God isn't the only reason he didn't make a name for himself. Matthew 4, 3 says, And the tempter came and said to him, said to Jesus, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He pointed to Scripture and he pointed to God. Jesus modeled submission to his heavenly father. He didn't model physical strength. And I am so tired of crucifixes of Jesus that have him all puny and skinny. He may have been bloodied up pretty bad, but he was a carpenter. He walked. He had muscles. We have this wimpy Jesus. Jesus willingly laid down his life. When Jesus was about to die for us willingly, he said in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Surrender can be pretty tough. It can pretty, you know, you can, be, you can still be a strong man and surrender. Matter of fact, that's what strength is. Hebrews 5 verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Hopefully we'll see in the next few weeks how God gives Abraham a name. God gives people the name. 
You don't make it for yourself. <laughs> Remember Simon in John 1, 42 was brought to Jesus. Uh, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Joshua 4.14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel. And they stood in awe of him uh, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. He didn't grasp after it. God gave it to him. He gave him favor, just like he did with Joseph in Egypt. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Nimrod and his people wanted to build their own name. All the trophies of mankind, all those trophy cases with their names on it. Let us make bricks. Let us build. Let us make a name lest we be dispersed. The bricks were God's material. By the way, some commentators believe bricks and bitumen was an insult, meaning instead of the normal stone quarries that, are, that, are, that a lot of the buildings that are still around today were built with, this was going to be some uh, temporary, you know, they wanted to build it fast. <laughs> they were going to cut corners because they wanted to get to heaven quick, right? The minds that thought of these things because uh, to, to do these things were made by the creativity of God. We are made in God's image. By the way, mankind is smart. He's been smart from the beginning. Any evolutionary caveman type solution is, is an insult to God. Man didn't gradually, he wasn't born dumb. Oh, so God's image is dumb? Well, the people that believe that think that. God created man in his image and he was intelligent from the very beginning. But he used his intelligence in this case for his own pleasure, not God's. The rebellion is seen in the settling, seen secondly in the making of a name. And third, there was the man-made safety or what I, I, I think is revenge. One commentator said Genesis 11.2 in essence, anticipates the possibility of a development that would be realized only in the technical age in a way that would affect the whole of humanity. I mean, think about what mankind has done. Look at the Suez Canal, the Panama Canal, the, the you know, ships. And I mean, we're, we're an incredibly intelligent people. Here there are hints of political power and technological achievement, which didn't exist like that at the time. And, he's, and God knew it. He's saying, this is not going to be good for you. Allied with both and motivated also by a sense of corporate insecurity. Remember, they said, lest we be scattered. What that is, is a striving for fame. And the focus of their ambition is this tower. As we've learned earlier in Genesis 1 through 11, the prerogative of making a name belongs with God. Isaiah 63 verse 12. And heaven is God's place. They're going to build a, they're trying to get into heaven. Remember in Matthew where the, the guy came to the wedding feast and he didn't have the right clothes on? Get out. You'll be cast into the fire is what that says. And they're trying to build their way to heaven. Once again, as in the Garden of Eden, as with Cain and with Lamech, as with the marriage of the sons of God and the daughters of men, God-given boundaries are being crossed. Human beings are trying to grasp at what does not belong to them and to assert that no longer are they bound by the limits which God has set. Trying to get to heaven on their own. 
Here, one commentator said, is a communal rejection of the necessary separation between the heavenly and the earthly. Our human sin is that we fail to recognize that God is God and we try both individually and corporately to take God's place. How easy it is to fall into the temptation to grasp after divinity. The root of sin is rebellion. Rebellion against God's lordship, an assertion of human autonomy without God, a refusal to live in dependence of the creator who is the covenant Lord. This tower, this tower of Babel is a sort of architectural symbol of humankind's asserted greatness. We have them today, people. With its top in the heavens is an idiom for impregnable security. But it's also another symbol and picture of a violation of the limits God sets to human life and to human behavior for the sake of human well-being. God scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts and puts down the mighty from their thrones. Luke 1, 51 and 52. Isaiah 14, 13. This is a, it's written about Babylon, but it's also a picture of the devil himself. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Scholars have proposed that the, the way we think of ourselves is affected by technology. <laughs> this, is, this is old news, not new news. We tend to understand ourselves as constructionists, as makers, or as interveners. And many uh, areas of technology, I admit, they are, they're, they're life enhancing. I praise God for air conditioners. Some of you don't like ours right now because you're freezing. But I, I praise God for engineering. But what's troubling about Babel is technological pride. Human community under God is meant to harness the rest of the created order in a way that enables personal communion and harmony with creation to flourish. In that setting, technology can be as important, an important servant to us as part of our service for God. But church, listen, God put us here, put mankind on earth as an estate manager. We're not the owner. And that's what the people of Babel are doing. They're saying, we own it, and he owns it all. Genesis 11, the tower in the land of Shinar is a monument to ambitious technological man who has lost touch with the ways of God. Technique and skill become more important than understanding or wisdom. I, I just can't believe today when I see people talking about cloning something. Well, you took an embryo from there and an egg from there. You put it in a Petri dish, and you, you think you're awesome. You think you're incredible. You think you've made something. You've just manipulated what already existed. And then what becomes of science? Y'all listen to what this old research chemist said. This is unbelievably appropriate for today. Walter Thorson is his name. Having finally understood that scientific truth is a source of power, man has made the crucial decision that from now on the will to power and the uses of power should dictate the relevance and value of that truth. Because of that decision, pure science, the science of the past 400 years, will begin to be altered in subtle ways 
and will eventually disappear. Science is disappearing in our culture. You understand that? We do not care about XY and chromosomes. That's science. We don't care. If Thorson is, uh, Thorson is right, it means that we are often seeing in our scientific research program effectively a, listen to this, a cost-benefit manipulation of truth for the sake of practical and political usefulness. And friends, listen. The losses we're, uh, we're having today over the same things today are the same losses that, that those communities had back then. The loss of community. We've lost community. That's why the church stands out more today than maybe it did in the 1950s. This, this family of God. You can meet people in Christ that you are more, you're closer to than your own brothers and blood sisters and brothers. Because there's a bond in Christ. You meet someone in an airport. You meet someone on a boat in another country. You meet someone in a line at Walmart. And you can have more in common with them in five seconds than some of your own family members. Because there's a community of faith that ain't going to be stopped. <laughs> the church won't be stopped. God's going to make sure it does what it wants, he wants it to do. The communities they sought to keep safe was actually dispersed. They had failed in all their purported protection because they let them off the cliff. Listen to, listen to what Flavius Josephus, Josephus is a famous, well-known historian, Roman Jewish historian from around AD 37. And, and he's, he's got validity. It's not scriptural, scriptural what I'm about to read, read to you. It's not inspired by God, but I want you to listen to this. He wrote this in Antiquities of the Jews, book four, if you're, if you're one of these research nuts. All right. Now, it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe to God as if it were through his means they were happy, but to believe that it was their own courage that procured their happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence of his power. He also said he would be revenged on God if he should have a mind to drown the world again, for that he would build a tower too high for the waters to reach and that he would avenge himself on God for destroying his forefathers. I find it quite incredible that this year, despite all our modern technologies, all our modern alarm systems, Benny, Dolores, how many of you were without power when those straight line winds hit? Where were the weather warnings? Where was the alarms? And boom, just like that, more trees than I've seen fallen in years. Boom, one wind, 30 minutes, 15 minutes. You know, 20-ton trees dropped like paper by the hand of God. Now, I, I don't pray for those things. I don't think that you're sinful if a tree fell on your, in your yard or hit your car or something. All right? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the protection of God, uh, the protection of our souls and our families are ultimately in the hands of God. We can do things to be safe. We can buckle up. But in the end, it's God. Tornado warnings may be new, but we've had warnings of trusting in ourselves since the beginning of time. And the Tower of Babel is one of them. 
Progress that is not controlled by God and his word and his wisdom is more than a good thing with a bad motive. It's rebellion against God's control and sovereign loving hand. Don't settle. Don't make a name for yourself. Don't think for a second that you can make yourself safer than God can. And don't ever attempt to avenge God. Because by the way, he's not trying to kill you. <laughs> he's trying to love you into the kingdom of heaven. And his plans for you are good if you'll repent and trust him. Which leads to my, my quick and final thought, the restoration. All right, we have the rebellion, we've got to have the restoration. The Lord came down. Uh, verse 7, Genesis 11, let us go down. Now, you know that Babel means uh, to confuse. And there's a lot of places in the Old Testament where God says, I'm going to confuse you. But he's not doing that out, just out of punishment. As a matter of fact, over in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 33, he says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. But sometimes he allows confusion to get you to the place of peace he wants you to have. God's always working to put mankind back on the path to safety, even when they're slow to, to, to help him, right? And that's what we call grace, getting what you don't deserve and do not work for. Babylon symbolically represents mankind's desire to take God's place. The ESV study Bible explains it this way. It was necessary for the Lord to come down in order to see the city and the tower, acknowledging the potential danger of a unified, self-confident humanity. God intervenes by confusing their language so that they cannot understand one another. This has the desired effect of dispersing the people throughout the world, which was his plan in the first place. God puts them back on track. You know why? Because the smallest package in the world is the one that's wrapped up in itself. And he knows that about humans. He knows they're not going to have joy in themselves. And so he does something about it. Last week, the, the thorns of the curse in the Garden of Eden turned into the thorns on Christ's head when he made restoration for mankind. And this week, the confusion of tongues at Babel turns into Pentecost, where everybody hears their their own language. They hear the gospel in their own language. It's a restoration. God already knew it. Babel was setting up Pentecost. And mankind's only hope. D.L. Moody once said, God sends no one away except those who are full of themselves. <laughs> when we strive to be everything, God can't use us for anything. But when we strive to be free, when we're free to be nothing, God can use us for anything. And may we be free in all our technological advances and our creativity. Let us use our minds and our hearts and, and, for, and our collective energies as a church to build the kingdom of God, brick by brick, not the kingdom of man. Amen. Would you stand? Father God, we love you. We praise you. We don't want to be nimrods, Lord. We want to be people who let you give us a name. And you have given us a name. If we've called on the name of Jesus, we are children of the Most High God. We are heirs to the throne of God. And so, Father, we praise you because of the faith you've given us, because of the repentance you've put in our hearts to turn from sin, and because of your death, burial, and resurrection, we have hope. And I pray today, if there's anyone here that has not called on the name of Jesus for salvation, they would call out to you now. It's not some written out prayer. It's not some scripted thing. It's just a person getting on their knees, at least in their hearts, 
and crying out to you saying, God, I need you. Save me. Forgive my sin. I believe in your death, burial, and resurrection. If you do that, God will cleanse you. He'll make you righteous. He'll give you the righteousness it takes to get into heaven, which is perfection based on the blood of a perfect sacrifice, Jesus himself. Lord, I pray if there's others here that want to join this church and make this place their homes to serve, to not be pupitators or to not sit around, but to serve you fervently until your return. I pray they would come and join this church and be part of our team, the family of faith that we call Piperton. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.